Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now, on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. Our guest this week is Daniel Dove. Join us as Daniel explains how he shaped the position of brand ambassador, as well as managing what probably is considered the most prestigious cocktail competition in the world, the Agio World Class. Tune in to hear more about how Daniel created the very first bartending talent agency and how he is helping the whole community to transition to what he believes the future of the bar industry will be. So sit back, relax and enjoy. So Dan Dove here, owner and founder of the world's first bartending talent agency, Global Bartending, here with the super Michele with our first podcast. Woo, awesome. Thank you very much for finding the time. Uh, it's great to finally hear your voice. We haven't been chatting for a while, haven't we? No, it's great to hear your voice, man. It's happy to have you back in the UK. Awesome. So let's crack on. Um, obviously, I know you very well from your years at Diageo, but uh, your career started way before that. Uh, you're born in the UK, but uh, you moved out. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, not many people, I guess, know this about my earlier career, but... I, I studied in the UK and then when I was about to do my A-levels, my family decided to move to Spain. So we literally sold everything we had. We put our cat, our dog, all of our furniture in a truck and uh, and drove out to the south of Spain uh, in a town called Javier, just below Valencia. Um, and and yeah, it was, a, it was a fresh start for me and my family. And uh, so you studied there, did you? I did. I studied for I studied for one year there, and then um, met some friends in a bar, and one of as the you as as you do as we still do right <laughs> as we still do very well, um, and I met a guy that owned randomly um, a bar and a hairdressers, and so I needed to learn Spanish and needed to so, find a way. So, but like, were the two business combined? Was it like the same? It was, it, yeah, it was just, it was randomly um, amazing, still very good friend of mine, uh, Danny, his name was, and he um, he owned one of the the coolest hairdressers in town and also the coolest bar in town. Um, great entrepreneur, fa- fabulous guy, I learned a lot of him actually of my, in my early career. And so when I was 17, I went to work for him. Um, he's, uh, his father was Spanish and his mother English, so he, you know, we got on amazingly well and I, I actually started washing hair and coloring hair in his uh in his hairdressers for six months which was that's a, so weird oh man it's so weird it was so it was a it was a great experience though because it allowed me to definitely pick up my Spanish very quickly um but also to interact with people at that time and I, I was very unsure what I wanted to do because I'd actually studied to become a vet originally so I, I've gone from you know years and years of studying maths and science um to then eventually go to university to become a vet and now I found myself in a hairdresser's um, for six months when I was 17 and then um, I realized after that time that you know that, that wasn't going to be my career path and he offered to say look we uh, we lived in a very you know a, a touristic area and in the summer was the most amazing bar life and he said would you like to work in my bar on a Friday and Saturday night which I did um, and that's where my love for the bar industry started when I was 17 and working as a bar back in a cocktail bar in Spain. But how was bartending back then there? Was it a, a cocktail bar of sorts or was it more like a uh, party bar? No, it was, it was a cocktail bar. It was one of the only dedicated, it was a Mexican cuisine, but um, fully sort of dedicated cocktail bar. We were making six to 700 cocktails a night in there with a team of, you know, four of us behind the bar. And, uh, yeah, it was absolutely just, you know, the place where it kicked off at night, where everybody would come to, um, you know, smashing out Blue Lagoons. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so cool. Yeah, man. But um, no, it was it was an amazing start. And it was somewhere where I just I knew this is what industry I wanted to be in. So what was it that uh, made you realize this? Because at this point you have tried to you've done some hairdressing, which I'm, I'm assuming went well, considering <laughs> how sharp you look all the time. Then, not uh, today obviously you studied <laughs> well we're all we're all coming out of a pandemic so we're kind of excused then obviously you studied a completely different field but uh, somehow bartending stuck to you why is that 
I think for me, the, um, the, you know, the most important part, which I think is, you know, I know it's yourself and, and many others in the industry is the hospitality side and, you know, making sure that when people come in to, you know, visit you or visit your team or, you know, the venue that you look after them in the best possible way and get them the best experience. And I guess my whole career has been, you know, off the back of that of, of building experiences in many different formats and very different ways. Um, but that's where my, pa- my passion lies from day one and that's what I loved you know all the way from from there you know working in a cocktail bar at 17 um to all the way through where I've got to now 18 years later um it, that's always been the core attribute of what I've you know loved doing so yeah that's and it's funny to see that uh, the more I speak to my colleagues the more I realize that what keeps us in this industry is not the cocktail making aspect of it Although that's for sure, it's a lot of fun, but it's it's more about the hospitality, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know, cr- creating new experiences has been something that allows me to express my artistry and my mind in my career of what I've done. Because I think um, you know, as much as I loved bartending um, and working behind a bar, which I did for many many years as my base. Um, you know, my real passion was taking that expertise of drink making and service um, and managing a team and then putting that into more experiential marketing led, um, you know, campaigns or, uh, you know, in my career. That's fantastic. And uh, how many years did you spend in Spain? So I was there for um, about six to seven years. Uh, so I, I, quite a bit. I yeah, I spent my, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s in Spain, which I would never change for the world. It made me who I am I today. And I had the best time ever. Um, I always spoke to my friends who were at university at the time and they would always, uh, you know, try to come over just with pure jealousy of knowing the life I had out there. But um, met some great long, long term friends. I, you know, actually uh, Ross, who is currently my team here at Global Bartending, we met when we were 17 back in Spain, you know, and I've got many, many close friends now that we still go out together now. So yeah, absolutely. Met friends for life um, and started my career there. At what point uh, did you decide to move back? What was the reason behind it? Uh, there was a couple of reasons. One is that my family, we as a whole, decided to move back. Um, I did always, you know, assist my my dad uh, who moved out there. He was a, you know, a, he, had a, he had a large construction firm in the UK and moved that out to Spain. And so I always helped him alongside the admin side of that business. Um, and then once the recession hit in, in Spain, we decided to come back to the UK. And also for, you know, for my opportunities later in life, you know, there were, as we knew, you know, the London bar scene has always been electric, has always been amazing. Um, but at that point in particular as well, um, you know, the cocktail scene was really kicking off in London. And uh, there was a couple of opportunities where uh, me and a couple of friends from Spain had uh, to come over. And so, uh, yeah, we moved back to London. And actually started at the ping pong group uh, in London back in the day. You know, it was uh, it was an amazing place to be. It was, you know, as we all know, it was one of those first sort of uh, chains that grew very, very quickly in London. But um, you know, when they when they opened, it was one of the first times this fusion of uh, cuisines had come along, and really a heavy focus on top quality cocktails uh, alongside that. And so I was part of that team, and we grew from one bar to 12 um, in a matter of two years there. So it was a fast Wow, growth. that's yeah. huge. Yeah, it was huge. Um, and it was great to experience that and be part of that team and, you know, training up bar teams for each of those openings and then decided to leave there after about a year and a half, two years. So just to touch on the ping pong bit a little uh, for, for a bit, what challenges do you have when you expand a concept across so many venues in such a short period of time? Well, there was, I mean, you know, there's the obvious ones, which I think we've all experienced in some format, you know, staffing, absolutely, to be able to cater and keep the quality where you've had, you know, your, we had our flagship um, opening in Great Marlborough Street, actually, in central London, mm-hmm. and then um, started expanding out to Notting Hill and, you know, Bayswater, et cetera. And, um, yeah, staff was the number one. So, you know, we had to, within six months, create, you know, an internal training school as such to be able to pull through that amount of not just bar staff, but mm-hmm. managers and floor, um, which I was, in, you know, integral in that part of that training team of building that program, which was, you know, great starting from nothing almost and building that from you know, um, ground zero up. And then, um, 
Yeah, and consistency. So we had to look at the logistics of where, where and how a lot of our, you know, ingredients were purchased and some of them pre-batched. We, you know, we moved into, um, a, a large warehouse just outside London to be able to cater for that as well to opening a chain. So yeah, there were, there were, there were lots of, there were lots of changes, but I, my, my focus at that time within that team was not on the logistics of that, but more on the training side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and what was the next step in your career after that? Well, it was um, at that time. I um, we had a, a number of brands coming in, speaking to us as we all do in bars, and um, there are a couple of brands where they were coming in asking if we would bartend for them at certain events um, in the coming within that summer. And what I realised was at that time um, that there were a real lack of bar event companies in London. I mean, now there's so many and great companies you know that, that exist out there now, but. Um, you know, back in the day, there, there really weren't that many. Um, you know, Alan and, uh, you know, the team at Sweet and Chili was, were, were just starting to pick up. They, they were, you know, they've always been a fantastic business. You know, Shaker, Create, there were a few around, but what I really did see an opportunity of creating a, a bar led events business that catered for brands. And that's where the whole experiential side of my career started. And so I opened up a business called UK Bar Management. Um, Mm -hmm. and we, and we started working for, you know, one of our biggest contracts was Bombay Sapphire. We used to work back in the day with uh, Jamie Walker and Sam and uh, Merlin and, you know, and so we created some amazing, um, experiential events for them, um, across Europe in Italy, Spain, the UK. Um, yeah. And, and, and that really then sort of diversified into, we did ended up doing, you know, bar catering at weddings. Um, and lots of private events. Um, and I, and I ran that business for five years successfully. Um, it was a great part. I, I was still in my early to mid twenties at the time. So I went through a massive learning curve through op- operating an events, a bar events business, which is a very different beast to running a bar. Um, but I found out that that was where my love sat more than operating a bar was the, was the experiential and event side. And why is that? What is it? Uh, what are the key differences that made you like one more than the other? I guess, I guess, from an event perspective, I I personally buzz off of short timelines. So I I love someone setting me a task of saying, Dan, you've got one week to pull this off. And so I I know the way my brain is structured and the way that I can operate. And I, you know, it drives huge passion for me to be able to execute on, on short timeframes. Um, and that, and that was really what I, that was the noticeable difference from a sort of, you know, working in the bar restaurant industry where you may have a six month plan to develop a drinks menu. And then, you know, you've got this, you know, months of timelines, um, and, and never days or weeks. So that, that's something that I really love doing. Um, and the whole idea of preparing for events, you know, we, I'm a, I know people that know me, yourself as well, you know, I've, I have a serious OCD. I, I, I love everything in, in its place. Um, I'm all over, you know, huge in preparation. I believe preparation is what sets you up for life, not just in business. Um, and so the preparation involved in, in event execution. Um, is continuous, you know, and as we will say, we know it's, you know, 18, 90% of a, the success of an event is, is in the prep. And so, um, you know, that's why I, I love doing it. So it's fantastic. And so th- this company, how did it go after five years? Because you mentioned was it five years, was it something that you thought, okay, it's a chapter of your life that you wanted to close or was any other reason that uh, led you to well, move Well, you know what, I've, I've never shared this before, but I, you know, halfway through my, my, um, UK bar management. So about two to three years into that, I, I knew by working with brands such as Bombay Sapphire at the time that I would, I would love to become a brand ambassador. And that was where the love of that part of my career started. And so I did actually go for an interview with Bombay Sapphire for the global brand ambassador. But I think I was only oh, about, no way. yeah, man, I think I was only about 23 at the time, 22. Okay. Um, and I, not that age makes a big difference, but I think experience does. And I think it's what you've had within those years that sets you up, you know, and, um, and I was probably quite naive at the time to think that maybe at 22, 23, I could become a global ambassador for one of the most iconic genes in the world. Um, you know, having had my event experience and running and owning a bar and then, you know, setting, I, I thought at that time I had everything in the locker that I needed 
to represent a global brand. And, I, you know, and, and looking back now and obviously going through and managing ambassadors, I knew I was not quite ready for that. But I did that. Um, I didn't get that job. I carried on working with UK Bar Management, um, running that for a couple more years. And then, um, yeah, and then I saw the availability of a, the brand ambassador job for Zacapa Rum. You know, Zacapa had just mm-hmm. come into the UK market and there was an agency looking for a brand ambassador. And for me, you know, my love of, of luxury, my love of rum and my passion for becoming a brand ambassador, I, I interviewed for the job and, and got it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, still congratulations for that, uh, even if it's quite a while ago. But um, what I find very interesting about this period of time is that I think brand ambassadors were not, uh, as a position, it wasn't well-defined back then, I think. I think now we have an, a, sort of like an expectation of what a brand ambassador is supposed to be, while back then it wasn't a thing, was it? So your generation of brand ambassadors were the people that actually shaped the position to what it is nowadays, right? Yeah. Did you feel uh, did you feel that way when or did you feel like you had a clear role when you joined that job? Yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely sit here today and say that the the job role had evolved massively in the time that I was part of Diageo. So, you know, I um I started back in 2009, so 11 years ago. And as you say, the role of the brand ambassador had not been defined very well. Um it was even more misunderstood than it is today uh, and what value that a brand ambassador brings to a brand or a larger corporate business. Um, and so your job profile changed a lot day to day. So I was, you know, my first year of Zacapa was purely going around uh, to, you know, some of the best bars and restaurants in London, working on menu concepts with bar managers and chefs um and trainings so i was you know i was booking in something up to uh, you know 10 to 12 trainings a week for for high-end bars and restaurants in london um that was 11 years ago and you know i um going through that we then i guess i guess a business like diageo one of the most amazing drink businesses ever to work for you know they're they're so good at what they do and especially on a brand ambassador level and a bartender advocacy level as well you know we us our, our reserve team our Diageo reserve team definitely evolved over that time you know we grew about eightfold in terms of turnover and size and team size during the time that I was part of it so um yeah it was it, it was an amazing part of our career all of us and when I say all of us there was by the time I left there were 47 of us in that team from brand ambassadors wow. to our marketing team our sales um so yeah, it was um, it was a great, and I, I would never change that team for the world. We had the most amazing experiences, um, and you know, my after working with Zacapa, which is still literally in my blood today. I still, you know, Lorena Vasquez is still my second mum. I call her, um, <laughs> man, she's amazing. That woman, um, and everything about Zacapa, I still I still love and would you know promote and sell to the my my deathbed. I think so. Um, and then from Zacapa, I moved into um, managing our brand ambassador team as that grew, uh, developing developing that just legendary team. I still, you know, I, I love them guys to pieces and girls. You know, it was such a, a, an amazing part of all of our career, and I, I'm hoping they would they would back me in saying that you know I I had all of their not just business and career lives but their personal lives at best at heart and you know i i dedicated my five six years there managing that team to the best of my best of my ability that uh, was a crazy crazy times because i remember having a lot of interactions with uh, the team at the time you know and uh, i met uh, i met a few of them uh, uh, during my time here back in the uk because some of them are like now working for other brands or like some of them are still with the Aja, i'm assuming but yeah, there was a cracking, cracker of a team. Eh? It was uh, pretty cool. Yeah, man. And you guys worked quite hard on WordCast as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where my role evolved into becoming managing World Class. So um, as World Class was growing, you know, again, World Class as an entity, amazing platform uh, for the trade. It, um, I started again my career at Diageo when World Class program started back in 2009. Um and then saw that grow alongside our team and the and and the on trade and 
alongside that become the level of bartenders and the quantity of the level of bartenders across the globe, you know, but we went from, you know, 20 to 60 countries with world-class over that period. And, um, yeah, what, I mean, you know, you know, man, you've been part of it many times and, and performed amazingly well at the finals. And, you know, you, you, you understand what it takes to get there and, and be part of the family as well, which is an amazing family to be part of. But I think, you know, bartenders, we always talk about how it feels to join competitions from our side. What I'm interested to hear about is how do you guys uh, who organize these competitions feel about it? Because, for instance, I mean, having seen World Class, which probably is the most important competition that we have in our industry, you must be quite involved every year. Like, I mean, from an emotional standpoint, because you take this group of people, right? And you invest a lot of time and energy and then... You sort of have your own team, no? That represents the country and the place where you work for. That goes and competes against other teams, right? I don't know how 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 is it from your end? Oh man, my I mean, the, you know, the guys that especially have then won the UK finals and then come out to the global finals with me over the years, and you will, will know my one my just pure passion for making sure they have everything they need at every second of the day. Um, you know, we were sleeping two hours a night at the global finals to make sure that, you know, like of Aiden and Ali and Jamie and, you know, everybody, you know, we've had the most amazing experiences out there, but I am and was, well, I was when I was part of the team, you know, 100% emotionally invested in that, in that, not just brand and building, you know, the UK program and, you know, the, the content of the competition and, you know, and the, and our brand ambassador team to help manage it. But, you know, in, from the from a bartender perspective as you know i you know it was my love it was it was me for 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 six five six years um and as you know man like coming in you know to the savoy back in the day and then seeing all of you guys make it through and then perform at the finals and you know uh, it was it was just the most unbelievable thing to see when we spend so many hours as ambassadors out in the trade you know, working with you guys on many different levels throughout the year outside of world class and then to see, you know, some of you make it through and then perform the most amazing performances at the finals was just great, man. Some of the best moments in my life. Would you like to give us some examples of like some of the most rewarding moments that you had? Because like, like, let's not forget that you guys as UK team, you have arranged some amazing competitions. For instance, the one that happened on a plane. Like, would you like to talk to us about the logistics of that? Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was absolutely crazy. Um, I think Gareth will uh, will definitely tell you in detail around that around that year. But yeah, I mean, running. You know, we've run. It's just talking from a GB, you know, a UK perspective, not a global level. The, you know, the global finals are a whole different ball game in terms of logistics. But um, you know, just from the UK perspective, when we used to run our finals all the way. You know, up in, up in Scotland to the north of England, as you, and as you say, uh, through Heathrow Terminal 5 in duty free when we were, you know, we had to organize all assets. So all ingredients, all equipment to get through customs and security, obviously with, you know, limitations on, on liquid size. Um, and yeah, so that was one of the hardest that the team ever had to pull together was the, was, was the UK final at Heathrow Terminal 5. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a great partnership with Virgin that we took the winner over to, um, over to New York. Um, and they had to create their drinks. Um, and it was, you know, inspired by the aviation and, and creating drinks on a plane. So, um, yeah, it was, that was, that was a, that was a standout experience. Like, what were they making drinks on this plane? Because I, I, I don't see any way of making like you don't have any bars on planes do you well no they had they had organized it with virgin so they had a trolley each in uh in the first class lounge ah okay, okay so okay. they were making their 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 equivalent of a martini uh and then yeah served out to customers on in in the first class uh, on the plane so yeah oh. it was yeah it was it was amazing and actually that was that was one of the the trips i didn't actually go on so we you know i was working behind the scenes a lot on the logistics of it and uh-huh. obviously all the years following that um but I didn't personally go on onto that plane and experience it. But yeah, the the uh, the team, the rest of my team who went on said it was uh, absolutely amazing. Um, and, and I think that year from memory, Gareth might tell me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that he got all of his ingredients confiscated at customs coming no through way. before he performed that he'd practiced obviously for hours and hours. And you know more than anyone how 
how much stress that could cause of, you know, having everything ready to go in your suitcase and then pulled away from you last minute. And Gareth was actually walking around the, the duty free uh, and departure lounge looking for new ingredients and, and equipment to then take onto the plane to then perform. No way. And he ended up winning it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, hats off to him for that because, you know, that was one of the biggest turnarounds I've ever seen uh, at a global or a UK final. Can you imagine the levels of stress? Yeah, it is insane. And I think that's what our, that's when our jobs really kick in because as we all know in competitions that, you know, bad stuff happens sometimes, things you're unprepared for. And as we always, you know, to many bartenders that have, you know, what, you know, um, competed in competitions over the years is that, you know, you always pack three separate glasses of the same glass in three different suitcases just in case one breaks. And so there are absolute tips to, to know to how to cater for them and overcome them. But sometimes, things just go missing or things just get broken and you have to know how to adapt to that. And hopefully, you know, I was there as a, you know, world-class manager and my full brand ambassador team to help support in those moments where times got hard, you know, and unexpected. And we were there to support that and, you know, hopefully get people back on track. So you speak a lot about training. How do you go about uh, organizing training sessions and have the needs of bartenders changed throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, training to me is um, is vital. I think in in each part of my career where I've gone, you know, training in you know a large chain of bars, through to event staff when they come on um, to our events, and then now, you know, which we'll come on to in a bit around global bartending, um, around managing talent. That I, I, is vital, isn't it, to any industry, and to make sure that you receive the right training to to, to be the best you physically can. Um, and I, I, I never stop personally learning. I listen to everybody that I speak to. I think, you know, I think the best, the most successful people out there are the best listeners would be my, you know, one of my gauges. I think people that listen well to, to others, um, and, and genuinely understand what they're asking and, and being able to apply that is, is very, very important. So yeah, no training for me was, is vital. And it was a big part of, you know, building the brand ambassador team where, we really had to learn and create bespoke training modules for our ambassadors to build their expertise in what was quite, as you said earlier, you know, quite a, a lost, a lost role. And, and in many companies, it varied. You know, you would speak to one ambassador from one drinks company. They had a very different role to one that was at the Asia or one that was, at, you know, in a smaller drinks business. So, um, it was, yeah, it was really understanding what the value of that person brings to the business. Um, and I always speak about value and not cost because people, which I'll come on to a global bartending in a moment, but we often talk a lot around day rates and what, what you cost, but that, that doesn't really undervalue or that doesn't value what you bring to that business sometimes. So it's about articulating what that, that cost is worth as value to a business. Um, and that's where I, you know, I found a massive disconnect between the on-trade, I guess, and corporate businesses. Very cool. And um, like, just to close on the training bit, have the needs of the bartending community changed in the past 10 years when it comes to training? Like, do you find yourself that some of the trainings that you were providing at the early stage of your career are perhaps redundant at this stage? I think um, if I can talk, if I talk specifically about the, um, the world-class training that we used to, you know, we used to tour with, and train out to hundreds of bartenders across the country. Um, I mean, that, that content evolved on a six monthly basis. So every six months we would revisit the content of that training program and look at what was current. And as we know, you know, especially in the UK, um, trends move so quickly. We're generally at the top of the pyramid for trend insight a lot of the time from food and drink. And so we have to move quicker than many other countries around the world for, you know, what we're delivering from a, from an on-trade perspective. But then it's on us to then think, how do we then relook at the training content to, be, to deliver, deliver out? And, you know, a big passion of mine was future trends and it still is. I, I am obsessed with, with innovation. I am always looking for what we believe, you know, is the next big thing. And um, that's why I dedicated a lot of the training content to future trends within world class, because I think having a good understanding of macro trends in the world 
gives you a better understanding to predict what will happen within the food and drink industry. Um, and, you know, as, as people that have come to my seminars before and, you know, have listened, you know, I, I always make the point around if you want to predict the future of food and drink, don't look within food and drink. You know, always, always look into other industries like cosmetics and technology. Understand, you know, the 30 year plan of where those industries are going um, and then see how can, that can then be applied to food and drink, because we're actually fairly low down the chain when we come to predicting trends. Um, and they're, they're usually heavily um, inspired by, you know, the cosmetics industry is a great example and perfumery because. If um, people always ask me as well, the question when we used to, you know, do a, a, a speed round in world class or we used to say, oh, you've got one hour, you know, a market challenge to go to go and choose ingredients and vessels and come back and make a drink within one hour. And they, they would always ask me, well, if I ever set that challenge, where would I go? And I always say I would go to a supermarket and they say, oh, what, you'd go to the supermarket and look down the exotic fruit or the spice aisle. I would say, no, no, I would go down the cosmetics aisle. And I would look to see what the flavor combinations are in perfumes, in creams, in shampoos, because if you actually go and look at those flavor combinations down that aisle, they are years ahead sometimes of food, food and drink. And even at the top end of the drinks industry, they're, they're ahead. So that's just a, you know, a, a sort of good insight into saying, wow, look into cosmetics, look into perfumery, and you will find the next hidden you know, flavor combination that you'll be releasing in your bar five years from now. Wow, that's fascinating. Awesome. Thank you very much for touching on that. Um, so we discussed uh, your years as band ambassador. We talked about work class, but obviously all good things have to come to an end. Uh, what made you think that you were ready to move on? So um, it was, I guess the first point I'll make is that it was the hardest decision in my career leaving Diageo um I loved that team um you know like family and um it was a very very hard decision to be made I made it fairly quickly um because I knew I didn't want to sit on it for too long before mm. I changed my mind um I made the decision in November 2017 and I left in December so it was, uh, yeah, it was a very, very quick exit, um, but for very good reasons, you know, um, for two years prior to leaving reserve and, and running world class, I had continuously seen this disconnect between globe, you know, bartending talent across the world and the way that they were getting utilized by drink brands, um, by opportunities or the lack of opportunity outside of the drinks industry and um, I knew I guess that I had built built up a very specific skill set over the years to understand corporate drink businesses and a deep understanding of how the best bartending talent across the world function and their needs at that time and the needs you know from many of them not not everybody you know everybody has a very different um, perspective of where they want to take their career but from many top bartenders that I spoke to across the world was that they would like bigger opportunities out, not just in the drinks industry, but outside of the drinks industry to be able to grow themselves as brands and become household names. You know, the same as that we've seen and witnessed chefs do that over the past decade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a company out there to be able to do that for anybody. And I don't think that that program can be, solely owned by a drinks company i think it has to be owned by somebody independent absolutely partnering with drinks companies yes but i don't think that would ever be delivered by a drinks company and so that was when um you know i, I really considered every angle of it over two years and then decided to leave to open up the world's first talent agency for bartenders so that one of the aspects that you mentioned is that you notice that chefs have this way of developing their careers uh, outside uh, a kitchen so they can develop their own brands. What makes you think it's the reason that this has not happened with bars yet? I think, I think what, we, um, what we often do in the top end of the drinks industry as a collective sometimes is we focus too much on the top end of the drinks industry and the people within it. And we have to understand that the reason, you know, the main reason why, why chefs have become household names is because of, general public and because of consumers 
and the need from that side of you know people cooking more at home and wanting to learn ingredients and methods of cooking and then watching cooking tv programs and then by default then certain personalities certain chefs then becoming famous through those channels but the need is from the consumer so what we're witnessing at the moment is a need from the consumer to have a greater knowledge on making drinks and so that's the reason why I waited until you know we launched the company back in 2018 I did it fairly under the radar I didn't you know I didn't have any interviews in press um, we did no major marketing on the business because we wanted to make sure that when we got to you know two three weeks ago when we launched that the business was a fully established functioning entity that was ready to go from the moment that we pressed green you know and so yeah, it was um, it was two years in the making. Um, there was a lot of research involved. Um, there was a lot of legal consultation involved over the last two years to produce our contracts for our talent. Um, lots of meetings with lots of you know massively influential people across the world within the drinks industry. And um, you know, and most importantly, I think people forget sometimes it's not all about you know the coolness and the PR ability of a business, but the the, the financial part of it. And I knew that by launching a global talent agency that we had to have a good foundation and good cash flow um, to be able to sustain a business of this size. So that's why I worked it for two years behind the scenes and then chose to launch it um, this year. So if I have never heard of it, how would you describe global bartending? Um, so global bartending is... Is the world's first talent agency representing the most influential bartenders on the planet. Okay. So we, we as a business have three arms. One is our, is what we lead with as a talent agency. So that's how we're branded. That's how we are perceived out to consumers and to the trade. Um, and but then we have two other arms. One is events and the second is strategy. So. I chose for the first two years to focus on the events and strategic side um, to build the business. And what we really focus on are making sure that we are involved with cool, innovative brands coming to market um, or brands that are well-established out that are just doing great things. And so we take them brands to new heights by creating amazing experiences that are trend-leading at that time we partner with many influential and trend-leading companies through technology, um, through the food industry, and, and hopefully deliver a unique experience for those brands. Um, and as I said, that's where you know my real passion through my career had sat, through growing experiences for brands. So that's where that laid. Um, I work strategically for many brands, all the way from soft drinks to non-alcoholic spirits to spirits. Um, really dealing what I did at Diageo, you know, really understanding a, you know an on-trade strategy. Um, including, you know, uh, R&D on liquid, drink and menu development, and then through to brand ambassador and bartender training. Um, and then, you know, behind the scenes, in the background of doing all of that over two years, I was slowly building the, the building blocks, I guess, to the talent agency. Um, and as I said, there was an enormous amount of work that's got into this to get to the position we are today. Um but yeah, you know, like every business, you have setbacks. You have, um, I, I went, I had many, I had many meetings with many different people and, you know, openly very, very much listening to everyone's point of view because I knew this had to be accepted across the globe with many different cultures. Yeah, it was, um, huge amount of work. Um, but I believe we've got to a very good model where we are today. Um, and you know, hopefully the, the exposure that we've received over the last two or three weeks, I want to thank everybody again, that's listening to this podcast, um, and to everyone that's given us the support over the last three weeks since launch, because we have had, um, yeah, the most unbelievable response. I didn't expect it, um, from across the world, all the way from New Zealand to, to the U S and back. Um, so yeah, no, no, thank you very much for the support, everyone. That's pretty awesome. And, um, just so we touch on that as well, you have also had a chance to open a bar, am I correct? Yeah, so we, we opened, uh, I opened Amico's the, the day I left Diageo. Um, that was actually what I believe many people thought I left to do. 
Um, it was an amazing, amazing um, experience for me. Uh, I think after working 10 years in corporate, I wanted to get back into operations was my, is the honest answer to that. I, I really felt like I needed to get back into understanding what operations felt like 10 years on in, you know, as you said, as you know, you know, it's changed massively in the way that we, you know, look at cocktail menus, um, the way that we service the demands from our customers have changed. And so I wanted to get back into that and experience it. Um, so we opened up Amigos. It was, you know, the first, I guess, you know, real high end cocktail bar at, in Essex, where I come from. It's where I've grew up. It's where I, I know our, you know, our pub, the public and our customers very well. And I knew the opportunity was there. And so, um, I decided to partner with a, a most amazing family. Um, I've known for many years, um, that, already owned a restaurant, uh, Italian, uh, Italian restaurant and Italian bar. And we decided to renovate their existing bar into a new concept together as, as a 50-50 partnership. And so I did that um, and w- was great, was great. And that's where my love, uh, that's where I express my love for plants to everybody, I think. No? Yeah. So would you like to talk to us about what was the idea, main concept of the bar? Yeah, I think uh, so. sustainability has been a big passion of mine. Um, we can say, I guess, where sustainability is a bit of a buzzword, but, um, you know, for me, you know, especially six, seven years ago through world-class, it was a big passion of driving, you know, um, different practices within that in uh, across the globe. And I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to express that in the best possible way when I left in a bar. So, um, and my love for botany and plants, you know, everybody, uh, I think 10 years ago, everybody was laughing at me when I was talking about gardening. And I think they, I don't know if you know Alan Titchmarsh, but Alan Titchmarsh is a, yeah. Yeah, um, but he's you know a televised gardener, uh, and everyone always <laughs> put, put him against me. I think on on TV, but <laughs> but I think gardening's officially become cool now, right? I think we can say you know in yeah, 2020, yeah, yeah. everybody shows that they're gardening or planting some type of herb. So I think um, yeah, it was uh, those two things combined, and my love for in- innovative drinks was the was the brief for Amicos, and so. Um, we created uh, an edible garden, which housed the most in the UK. We had over 150 species of edible plant in our garden. Um, and the whole idea of that was that we would cultivate them all in-house. So we worked with the most amazing company called Evergrow, um, where we partnered with them. They, they install a, you know, an under-counter hydroponic system. And it allowed us to grow from seed to plant in three weeks Whoa. and use a selection of hundreds of different herbs to be able to do that. And what we did was, you know, normally Michelin star chefs would use that system to be able to then grow for micro garnishing. We would then take those micro garnishes and then plant them out into our garden and grow them and let them flourish and then utilize our garden to be the base of our cocktail menu. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the majority of our ingredients were grown in-house, actually within house within the bar or the garden. Um, and then we would use that on a on a bi-annual menu. So every every six months we would change the menu depending on the season of the herbs that we were growing out in the garden. So yeah, it was um great experience. Learn, you know, many techniques through that time as well of it, you know, extracting flavour and understanding botany in, in the drinks world much more um you know as you know dandelion and many other bars around the world or no longer dandelion but um yeah you know m- many bars around the world and many bartenders that are leading those programs i think are it is the future of our industry you know one part of it uh, for definite but i think you know bartenders i think if if there's one area that i think we all need to grow our knowledge on um is, is botany you know i always say the facts around that there's over thirty thousand edible plants on our planet and we actually only utilize about five percent of them in our in the majority of our consumption around the world so i think we as bar industry you know as chefs are i would argue that chefs are a bit ahead of us from a foraging perspective mm-hmm. and understanding you know uh, natural life but if we can gain a better understanding into that world i think our drinks will evolve massively i agree uh, this is something that in asia i've noticed as well because in most of the countries that I visited there, uh, there was a, l- a lot of focus on cash crops or like popular crops. So your mangoes and your coconuts and whatever, while the local plants were often not regarded as something that's worthy of being used in a bar. And I think 
you know, considering the gigantic biodiversity, it's a bit of a lost opportunity. But, you know, there are a lot of bars that are starting to capitalize on this. Yeah, yeah. Great. You touched a bit about the future of uh, our industry. I think it'd be quite interesting. It'd be quite interesting to hear what your predictions are. You mentioned that there will be some sort of like home drinking or like we'll have to look at ways to involve the consumer a bit more when it comes to making drinks at home. Is this something that you see as a direction where we need to expand more as an industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, cocktail delivery service is a very generic term, but um, I know because I'm working on quite a number of projects right now with a number of brands that there will be a huge um, demand from from consumer, but, you know, will be in most drink companies' strategic planning that a big portion of that will now be focusing on how we deliver great experiences at home. Um, I think one initial thought that the bar trade have when they hear that is, wow, do we think people will be drinking at home more than drinking in bars? But I believe that there are massive opportunities, which I think going through COVID, we fast-tracked a lot of those ideas, which I think maybe may have happened in five to 10 years from now. Whereas now we're seeing some of the best bars or you know any, t- any level of bar across the country thinking how that they can deliver their service to people's homes. Um, so yes, on a very basic level, we will, we see now and, you know, especially in the UK, but we start seeing growing in even developing countries around the idea of bottled cocktails, um, being delivered to people's homes. But then alongside that also comes a lot of digital content. So, you know, fantastic tutorials from top bartenders across the globe of how to make, like we see with chefs you know, recipe videos, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that area will grow exponentially over the next couple of years. And again, COVID has definitely fast-tracked that. Um, and then experiences at people's homes. So I think we're, over the years, we've been so used to um, many sort of generic catering companies delivering food and basic drink servicing at home, at people's homes. And I think one I know from us specifically from global bartending and and hopefully many other businesses in this sector will really be focusing on delivering great world class experiences at people's homes um, and using you know in partnership with great bars great bartenders so it, the whole idea is not to separate the two but to try and bring those bars into people's homes in different formats so but uh, do you think because this is a bit of a hot button issue when i speak to my colleagues about it do you think that incentivizing people to drink at home is a threat for our businesses or is it an opportunity i always look at you know evolution as a or innovation as an opportunity i think you just have to adapt i think the businesses that stand still and and just hope that everything will go back to normal are the ones that will potentially fail um you know you've seen some you know some great bars around the world that have acted quickly you know, bottled, bottled their menus up and, you know, found, you know, different lines of distribution to get them out to customers, created great online content from their teams in their bars. Um, you know, I always called out, you know, technology is an area that has always, we have been always behind the curve on technology in the drinks industry, mm, um, you know, massively. And I think it's almost a scare from the hospitality industry that there is this, you know, which I, which I, like many others, believe that, you know, the core to hospitality is this person-to-person interaction. Um, and the whole thought of technology, people get scared about because they believe that, that it removes the person-to-person. But it's inevitable that, you know, this world, like, you know, we're having 5G installed everywhere. The reason why 5G is being installed is because the future of technology will not, you know, it, it will not be catered for by the current network we currently have globally, right? So, Every industry is powering up for a more technological future. Um, and I believe we do, we need to as a drinks industry. And so whether that's improving digital content that we're doing on social media to our website content, um, and then to technology we're actually using in bar, you know, whether that's through our reservation systems, whether that's, you know, touchscreen menus on tables or you know, big data when we're starting to understand patterns of how people drink and eat and at what time they eat. You know, if you if you just look into Samsung and, you know, some great technology companies that provide fridges in people's homes, 
if you look at the future of what fridge looks like in five to 10 years from now, even, and how they're connected to grocery and that you're able to order from, you know, your fridge automatically knows what product you're missing and can reorder it the day after, et cetera, et cetera. Um, with face, re- face recognition technology of understanding ingredients and how they mix and how they blend and then giving you outputs of how you can, you know, understand it. So, I th- again, I think we need to look more into other industries to understand how we cater for the future of this world within the hospitality industry. I agree. I agree. And uh, I think also like having giving people the tools to understand drinks better at home means that when they do go out, they are looking for something that is more of an experience, yeah. you know, and they're probably willing to pay more for it, right? Absolutely. You know, and, and it's the same with cooking, right? If you look at the, the question, Absolutely. the question that you just asked me, you, if you apply that to the food industry, everybody loves cooking, you know, more than ever at home. But that doesn't mean that they don't go to restaurants. It means that actually they appreciate more the level of chefs of what they can do versus themselves at home. So I see that the same in the bar industry is that I think the more people that can learn how to make cocktails at home instead of defaulting to a glass of wine, you will then grow the cocktail world for bars and restaurants and therefore growing the um, careers of bartenders. That's crazy. I I am 100% sure that when you were uh, washing hair at age 16, you didn't think you'd be talking about uh, face recognition in fridges uh, (laughs) 15 years after that. Never. (laughs) Michele, you know the funniest story with the hairdressing is that they, um, after after six months of working for them, they started teaching me how to color people's hair. And not many people know this, even in the drinks industry, but I'm colorblind. So really? it was, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm colorblind with, with, with brown, <laughs> with, but was specifically with browns, right? So it was like one of the funniest stories because I had to always look at the color codes versus the colors when I'm coloring people's hair. And I just used to get like my colleagues in the hairdressers just like shaking their head at me going, no, 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 you need to add another color because it's, it's you know, they could see it was developing wrong, wrong on the hair. So, um, but I never told them ever. Yeah. <laughs> that's why no I thought way. I'd come into the drinks industry. Yeah. Well, I was about to ask you for a haircut, but I guess I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no, but, no, I could cut your no, hair, no, maybe. Yeah, but I can't believe you're colorblind. I didn't know that. Well, that proved to be a challenge for you, I guess, at that time, right? <laughs> well, it was more of a challenge for the person who I was coloring their hair, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That was awesome to talk to you. I'm going to ask you a last, the last question, which is a question I ask to everyone, uh, which would be, if you could choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? Very last drink. Zacapro Old Fashioned. Ah, uh, there you go. It had to have Zacapro because you speak so highly about it. So. Oh, man. And my Zacapro Old Fashioned, it's my, dr- it's my drink. that I've, I've drunk thousands of them in my career, I believe, in many different countries, and it's the... The drink that always I, I just feel at home in any in any bar with any bartender. So yeah, that's my that's my choice of drink. Cool. Thank you very much for your time, and it was amazing to talk to you. And you, thanks so much, and uh, massive massive congrats on this podcast. It's amazing, man. Keep it going. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Daniel. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our personal account at mmariotti eighty nine for Michele, Alex J Murphy for myself, and Adrian Besser for Adrian. Thank you for listening.